BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. On the far south coast of the Australian state of New South Wales is a region known as the Sapphire Coast. As the name implies, sparkling beaches, spectacular wilderness, sweeping coastline, and native wildlife, including whale watching, make the area, also known as the Bega Valley, an idyllic seaside destination. Rich in Aboriginal history and culture, The region is a six-hour drive from both Sydney and the Victorian state capital of Melbourne. It's also less than a three-hour drive from the nation's capital city of Canberra. The biggest town on the coast is the inland urban and commercial center of Bega. The town is one of Australia's most established dairy farming regions, famous for its cheeses, The town also boasts easy access to the snowy mountain ski fields, a two and a half hour drive away. It takes about 90 minutes to drive along the Sapphire Coast. The crystal clear waters and soft sandy beaches amidst several national parks, providing incredible opportunities for swimming, snorkeling, surfing, fishing, and kayaking. Ben Boyd National Park is one example, which features a rugged coastline and is a popular spot for mountain biking, bushwalking, and camping. Many charming small towns and villages can be found in the region, whose residents regularly travel up and down the coast for work or leisure. This includes villages such as Tathra and Eden. A 20-minute drive southeast and 40-minute drive south of Bega, respectfully. Many local adolescents from the region attend Bega High School, and like the tourists that flock to the coast, they too regularly enjoy getting outdoors, partaking in camping and bushwalking. With such picturesque surroundings literally at their doorstep, it's a great way for local kids to experience all manner of adventure and forge lasting friendships. Trusting in the minimal risk of misadventure, Parents encourage their children to become familiar with both the bush and the beach. Learning the necessary precautions and steps to take, should they ever find themselves or their friends in trouble, is an important part of growing up in the country. But sometimes, the perils of the outdoors don't manifest themselves in the unpredictability of Mother Nature. Sometimes, it's something much more sinister and infinitely more horrifying. Now, let's get on with it. Who 
Lauren Berry was born October 11, 1982 to her parents, Garrett and Cheryl, and older brother Nathan. She attended Bletchington Public School in the town of Orange in New South Wales, where her kind nature saw her develop a close group of friends. Lauren also liked spending quality time with her family, especially her brother Nathan. Their striking physical resemblance made it obvious to everyone that they were siblings, and the pair shared a special bond. Nathan later told the Illawarra Mercury newspaper that his earliest memory of Lauren was playing together with her on their farm outside town as very young children. In a pine forest near the family's property, the siblings would play hide-and-seek with their neighborhood friends. Always working as a team, Nathan would help Lauren to find the best hiding places. Like any older brother, he could be bossy or jealous of Lauren at times. But above all, Nathan was fiercely protective of his little sister, always looking out for her. Despite their natural sibling ups and downs, the pair were best of friends. The Barry family eventually moved to Bega on the far south coast, a six-hour drive away from Orange. Garrett took up a job as a town planner for Bega Shire Consul. Cheryl also started working in town, often swapping shifts with her colleagues to allow her to take Lauren to Little Athletics. Lauren started attending Bega High School, where she again found a close group of friends who shared her passion for horse riding. One of these friends was Nicole Collins. Born on November 14, 1980, Nicole went by the nickname of Cole Lee. She was the second of two daughters to her parents, Graham, who was a local vet in Delma, and was a younger sister to Lisa. Nicole had her own horse, but unlike Lauren, who was shy and introverted, Nicole was a fun-loving extrovert. Her bubbly, energetic, and incredibly kind nature saw her make friends easily, and outside of school, she worked part-time at a local supermarket. Despite the almost two-year age difference between the girls, they were always close. Partly because the families lived in the township of Kalaru, a ten-minute drive from Biga, local teens, especially those who lived on properties and in villages outside Biga, all hung out together regardless of their age. Everyone looked after one another as they ventured off on their weekends exploring the local bushland, camping, canoeing on the Bega River, or spending their time at one of the many nearby beaches. It was an idyllic and safe location for kids to hang out while enjoying the beauty of nature around them. On the October long weekend of 1997, 14-year-old Lauren, 16-year-old Nicole, and some of their other friends, including Lauren's brother Nathan, were going camping at a popular bush spot known as White Rock, just outside Tanthra. On Friday, October 3rd, the girls attended the campsite, along with Nicole's father, Graham, who ensured they were all set up and prepared for the weekend. The campsite was only three kilometers from where Lauren, who was in grade nine, and Nicole, who was in grade 11, lived at nearby Kalaroo. Lauren was looking forward to her 15th birthday the following week. Nathan had been living and working in Sydney for the previous six months, but had come home for his sister's early birthday celebrations in the form of a family dinner. According to reporter Caroline Overington, things hadn't been smooth sailing for the Berries in the preceding weeks. Garrett and Cheryl's marriage had broken down, resulting in Garrett moving to an apartment in Tathra. Back at the campsite, there was relatively constant adult supervision, with the girls' parents checking in at regular intervals to ensure everyone is safe and well. As Lauren and Nicole were so close to home, they had the benefit of being able to call in to shower, eat, and change their clothes before heading back to the campsite. The teens, some of whom had ridden their horses to the campsite, chatted around a bonfire, goofed around and listened to music. On October 5th, Nicole called in at home, before leaving the house, told her mother Delma she'd see her the next morning when Delma would collect her daughter from the campsite at 10.30 a.m. That same day, 
Lauren's brother Nathan drove out to the campsite to hang out for a few hours. By the late afternoon, he'd left, but would return later that evening. Nicole's father, Graham, had also swung by the campsite on the Sunday afternoon to check on the group. Some of the other girls at the camp had brought their boyfriends along. Lauren didn't have a boyfriend, but Nicole had recently broken up with the boys she had been dating. As the Sunday night wore on, Nicole became contemplative and was feeling down about her breakup. She knew her ex was at a party at a mutual friend's house a few kilometers away. She decided she wanted to walk over to discuss with him the possibility of getting back together. But by this time, it was dark. Not necessarily safe to go walking around the bush alone, given the risk of misadventure. If Nicole fell and injured herself, there'd be no way of calling for help. And these were the days before every teenager had a mobile phone. Nicole and Lauren talked about walking to the party together. And at 9 p.m., they set off from the campsite, walking along the Biga Tathra Road at Evans Hill. Lauren brought along a black rubber flashlight, while Nicole carried a bottle of cola mixed with bourbon. She was wearing her blue high school jacket when the girl's friends asked where they were going. Nicole responded, quote, I'm going to fix up my life. The pair had been gone for around an hour when Nathan returned to the campsite to spend the night. Nathan knew if he'd seen the girls walking as he drove towards the campsite, he would have offered them a lift. But it wasn't unusual for teens in the area to walk to where they wanted to get. It was a relatively safe community, and after all, Lauren and Nicole were extremely familiar with the surrounding area. The next morning, Nathan and the rest of the gang awoke at the campsite to find that Lauren and Nicole hadn't returned. It wasn't necessarily a big deal. They'd probably stayed late at the party and then crashed at either the Berries or the Collinses instead of walking all the way back through the chilly spring night to the campsite. Nathan drove home half expecting to find the girls there, but they weren't. There had been no phone call from Lauren to say she was at Nicole's. Garen and Cheryl hadn't seen their daughter either, and when they called the Collinses, they discovered Nicole, too, had failed to come home. Both families were immediately extremely concerned. It was completely out of character for their usually responsible daughters to not come home or make contact in some form to advise of their whereabouts. Garrett drove up to the campsite while Cheryl started making phone calls to more of Lauren's friends. None of the kids at the campsite or anyone else had seen either girl since they'd walked off into the dark the night before. Everyone hoped that maybe there was a slight possibility the girls had got lost, or even worse, were injured and unable to seek help. But both girls knew the local area and Bushland so well that the chance of this was slim. They'd only been a very short distance from their homes and were confident in the outdoors environment. Nicole's father, Graham, drove out past the campsite while Nathan drove to different hangouts where he thought they could be. Friends of the girls took to the coastal bush trails between Kalaroo and Tathra, but there was no sign of them. At midday, local police were notified, along with the Biga Volunteer Rescue Squad, Naruma, and State Emergency Service personnel from Burmagewe, Eden, and Biga. The Mounta Police and Dog Squad descended on the campsite and surrounding areas. They searched beaches and clifftops, focusing on the Evans Hill area between Kalaroo and Tathra. Lauren's father, Garrett, went to the extent of sacrificing precious sleep in order to continue his exhausting search. Later that day, near a dirt track at Old Wallagoot Road, local volunteers found Lauren's surf jacket and the red-checked flannelette shirt she'd been wearing the night before but there was still no clue as to where the girls could be or what might have happened to them. Three days later, it was evident that the girls hadn't run away and they hadn't even accessed their bank account. The Berries and the Collinses held an emotional press conference, appealing for anyone with information about the girls' disappearance to come forward. Garrett said, quote, 
The pain I'm going through of not knowing where she is is unbelievable. Black and white flyers appealing for information bearing the girls' pictures were plastered in car and shop windows around the local area. By this stage, police had established a task force to investigate the disappearances, which included investigators from as far north as Naura and Wulungong. Around 10 days after the girls' disappearance, Lauren's mother Cheryl told the media how lost she felt without knowing what had happened to her daughter. Quote, It's a pain that can't be described, I don't think. A total loss, emptiness, can't get warm. You're just cold all the time because it's just a pain that is totally undescribable. Till you've been through it, you have no idea what it's like. Nathan added, quote, I'm going through a lot of heartache. I just want her back. I don't care what I have to do to get her back. Unfortunately, friends of Lauren and Nicole, who had been at the campsite the night the girls disappeared, became the targets of victim-blaming by some of the community. Locals tut-tutted and shook their heads, wondering why the teenagers had decided to leave the campsite alone in the dark and questioned why they'd been drinking alcohol. This was the last thing the devastated families needed, but tips from the public continued to come in. One was from a woman who told police that on the night the girls disappeared, she'd been driving towards Tathra around 9.50pm. At one point, she noticed a vehicle stopped in the middle of the road, so she slowed down. A man and two girls were standing outside the car, and he appeared to be talking to them. The car eventually moved over to the side of the road, as did the man and the girls, and the woman drove on by. Meanwhile, more evidence had been found in the car park of Ben Boyd National Park on the northern outskirts of Eden. There was a flashlight identical to the one Lauren owned, which the girls took with them when they left the campsite, as well as a tampon. Nicole was believed to be on her period during the camp and was using tampons at the time. By now, another local had come forward with another potential clue. The man had been driving past Evans Hill the morning after the girls disappeared. On the other side of the road, the man noticed a portable TV set, which had been painted pink. It was an unusual object to find in such a rural area, so the man contacted the police. But by the time detectives went out to look for it, it was gone. With no sign of the girls, Harsan leads two and a half to three weeks into the investigation, police made the difficult decision to scale back the search. They still had lines of inquiry to pursue, but resources were now limited. A heartbroken Nathan returned to work in Sydney at the wishes of his family. Like everyone around him, he felt totally helpless. The pug had barely been pulled on the additional investigative resources, when the task force received a phone call from the detectives in Yas, near Canberra, three and a half hour drive north of Biga, two local men were known to Yas police as violent career criminals. There was a good chance they could have abducted Lauren and Nicole. The men were 28-year-old Leslie Camilleri and 23-year-old Lindsay Beckett. Between them, they had over 200 criminal convictions. Yas police had received a tip off from an informant named Andrew, who was friends with the two men. Andrew told police he'd had a conversation with Leslie and Lindsay about the disappearance of the two girls. Andrew claimed that Leslie told him he wouldn't have been surprised if police pursued the men over the matter. As Bega detectives whittled down their suspect list and more people were excluded, they decided to focus more closely on Leslie and Lindsay. They discovered that four weeks prior to Lauren and Nicole's disappearance, Leslie had appeared in the New South Wales District Court. He was being tried for six charges relating to sexual offenses against his de facto wife's 11-year-old daughter, but the trial was aborted after only two days due to a technicality, and Leslie was released on bail, awaiting a new trial date. Then on September 14th, Leslie and Lindsay were driving around Canberra when they offered a lift to a 19-year-old woman 
whom we shall refer to as R. A trio used amphetamines together, but the encounter took an ugly turn when the men forced R into the back seat at knife point, where they took turns sexually assaulting her. R was held for the next 12 hours. She was repeatedly raped orally, vaginally, and anally, with Leslie threatening to tie her up and hitting her on the head to force her to cooperate. The men drove out of Canberra and were on their way to Borel, about two hours northeast. Desperate for an opportunity to escape, Har pleaded with the men to let her out so she could relieve herself. The men stomped the car in the rest area just off the Hume Highway. Har was only wearing shoes, socks, and a t-shirt, but when she got out of the car, she fled through the darkness and the bush, managing to conceal herself in a wombat burrow. Leslie and Lindsay, still armed with their knives, gave chase, searching for R through the scrub. Failing to find her, they returned to the car and sped off. As the lights of the vehicle disappeared into the distance, R emerged from the wombat burrow and ran through the bush till she came to a farmhouse where the owners raised the alarm. R underwent a medical examination to help police gather evidence. Leslie and Lindsay were charged with abduction and sexual assault and released on bail. But as time passed, R changed her mind. Becoming so overwhelmed and traumatized by her experience, she decided not to proceed with the charges. Leslie and Lindsay had got away with their shocking crime. All of this was to great interest to Bega detectives. Then, on October 25th, a stolen car was found abandoned in Canberra. Inside the vehicle were maps of Bega and the surroundings, as well as blood-stained clothing and the boot belonging to Lindsay Beckett. This was reported to Bega detectives. On October 28th, Canberra police arrested Lindsay for vehicle theft and breaching bail, remanding him in custody. Following up on Leslie's comment to her friend Andrew about Lauren and Nicole, investigators drove to Canberra to interview Lindsay. As they drove the three and a half hours, they mauled over the details of the case, especially the pink TV, found abandoned on the side of the road the day after the girls disappeared. By this stage, police had received more information about the appliance. Couple had contacted police advising that they had found the TV, painted it black, and then sold it to an unknown party. The woman who had purchased the secondhand TV also contacted the police. Upon inspecting the TV, they noticed that some of the black paint was wearing off revealing a distinctive pink color underneath. When the set was examined, the serial number showed it was the same TV as one owned by Lindsay. As a detective's car headed north along the highway, one of them mused that even a smaller model TV was an awkward item to transport. You'd only dump a bulky object like that if you had to make room inside a car to fit something else inside. Like two teenage girls... Lindsay Beckett was born on March 27, 1974, in New Zealand. His mother gave birth to him when she was 15 years old, the pregnancy a result of a sexual assault. Lindsay grew up in Apotiki, in the area known as the Bay of Plenty. He never knew his biological father. Lindsay's childhood was violent, and he grew into a violent man, eventually moving to Australia. At one stage, he worked as a fishing trawler in the coastal town of Eden. A 45-minute drive south of Bega. By October 1997, he had 11 prior criminal convictions, some for robbery and assault, arising from seven appearances in court. Leslie Camilleri was born on May 31, 1969, in the southwest Sydney suburb of Liverpool. One of six children, Leslie didn't have a happy home life due to his mother struggling with her own personal issues. Leslie rarely went to school and as a result did not learn to read or write. Before he reached the age of 10, Leslie was considered a quote, uncontrollable child by the state. He was removed from his mother's care and thereafter was placed in juvenile detention. 
but he escaped early on. From the time he was 10 years old, lived on the street for the next two years in Sydney's red light district of King's Cross. The first time Leslie ever met his biological father was after he turned 13. At the same time, he was ordered by the court to return to juvenile detention till he was 15 years old. Throughout his adult years, Leslie drifted from job to job, never managing to hold down anything permanent. This was due mainly to Leslie's antisocial and illegal behavior. He was extremely violent and prone to explosive outbursts. In a 1993 psychiatric report, Leslie's personality was described as follows. Quote, His present troubles apparently stem from a pattern of theft and vandalism, which have been his reaction to social ostracism, leading to frustration, which because of poor impulse control, has ended in explosive outbursts of destructive behavior. Leslie's history of emotional instability also saw him either threatening or attempting to take his own life on a number of occasions. Leslie's inability to hold down a job was also a result of his heavy drug use, which included LSD, marijuana, cocaine, and amphetamines. Leslie and Lindsay first crossed paths around 1994 to 1995, the pair began helping each other steal cars. Both men were heavy speed users and would often use the drug prior to their offending. Leslie had been in and out of prison over the years since his first adult court appearance at age 19. It was an interesting dynamic between the pair. Leslie was said to be more domineering of the two. And in that regard, it was hardly a friendship of equals. Leslie gave the instructions and Lindsay followed him around. Acquiescing to whatever he said, by mid-1997, Lindsay was living with Leslie and his de facto wife. This was the same woman whose daughter Leslie would later be charged with allegedly sexually assaulting. By October that same year, Leslie and Lindsay were living in an apartment in Yas with their friend Andrew who'd go on to become a police informant. The three men passed their time by stealing cars together. Leslie's criminal record alone reflected 146 prior convictions for offenses, including dishonesty, theft, and willful damage, arising out of nine court appearances. Lindsay denied any knowledge of Lauren and Nicole's abduction or probable murders. He claimed he didn't know anything about a pink TV being left by the road near Evans Hill. When police interviewed Leslie the following day, who was remanded in custody for breaching bail, he too denied any such knowledge. Police interviewed Lindsay again a week later. He was calm and laid back, telling investigators that the men were indeed in the Biga area on the long weekend. But his demeanor changed when detectives again raised the issue of the pink TV. Lindsay initially stated he couldn't recall a TV being in the back seat of the car the night the girls disappeared. Only some bags. He eventually admitted that a TV had been in the back seat, but he had no idea what happened to it. As Lindsay suddenly became closed off to further questions, the interview ended. But police continued their inquiries. They discovered that Leslie and Lindsay had actually stolen the TV as part payment for money owed to them by their friend Andrew over a drug deal. On November 6th, detectives interviewed Leslie for a second time. He told police exactly what Lindsay had the day before. According to his version of events, on October 5th, the men went to the Biga Festival. They then drove north to Yas and Canberra continuing on until ultimately arriving in Sydney. Leslie said the men knew nothing about Lauren and Nicole, apart from what they'd seen in the newspapers, and the men definitely hadn't gone to Tathra on the weekend in question. Leslie told police he couldn't remember whether there had been a TV in the car. He stated that he took some of Andrew's belongings and disposed of them in Biga, behind a house belonging to St. Vincent de Paul. Leslie admitted to taking a wooden TV that belonged to Andrew and leaving it in front of St. Vincent de Paul, but a moment later changed his story about this detail, saying he didn't know whether he'd taken a TV 
or whether it was something else. When Leslie was probed about the pink TV, he shut down. He refused to speak with the investigators any further. According to one senior detective, when Leslie returned to his cell following the interview, he had to be sedated after repeatedly hitting his head against the wall, crying about police knowing about the TV. By November 12th, police were confident from the dynamic between the two suspects that Lindsay could be the one to crack. He was more easily led, more malleable, and investigators decided to use this to their full advantage. Before the interview commenced, detectives placed two large pictures of Lauren and Nicole on the desk in front of Lindsay. When he saw them, he turned them over, almost as if he couldn't bring himself to look at them. Police once again walked Lindsay through the chronology of events, this time including information that placed him at a crucial location at a particular time. Detectives put it to Lindsay that now was the opportunity to tell them what he knew and that they would be making Leslie the same offer. Lindsay took a short break to have a cigarette, consider his options, and gather his thoughts. When he returned to the interview room, he was visibly upset, and he said the words investigators had been hoping to hear. Quote, I'll show you where they are. He made a full confession. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Lindsay told police that on the weekend beginning October 3rd, both men went to Bega. Leslie stole checks belonging to Andrew, as well as his pink portable TV, due to a failure to pay up a drug debt. In the town of Kuma, en route to Biga, Lindsay bought a case of beer. Two days later, on the evening of October 5th, both men were driving around the Biga area in Leslie's de facto Ford Telstar. They drank beer and injected each other with amphetamines. Leslie was driving and Lindsay was in the passenger seat. Leslie had argued with his girlfriend that afternoon and told Lindsay he was feeling depressed. Lindsay chalked this up to Leslie awaiting a retrial over the sexual assault allegations regarding his de facto's preteen daughter. According to Lindsay, while the men were driving around, Leslie spotted Lauren and Nicole walking along the Bega Tathra Road at around 10 p.m., they stopped the car and Leslie spoke to the girls, offering them a lift, which Lindsay claimed the girls accepted. However, Lauren's brother Nathan later stated he believed the girls would only have gotten to the vehicle out of fear for their lives. In order to make room for the girls to get into the back seat of the car, 
Lindsay dumped the pink TV on the side of the road. He also placed bags of clothing and other items in the boot. Lindsay told police that the men drove Lauren and Nicole around for a while, looking for a party, having asked them if they wanted to go to the beach. Lindsay claimed the group drove to Tather Beach, where the men drank some more beers, and everyone talked. Leslie invited the girls to see if there were any parties taking place in Biga, as part of the local festival. Lauren and Nicole agreed to go, but said they wanted to go via the campsite so they could let their friends know where they were going. Leslie started to drive back towards White Rock, with Lindsay next to him and Lauren and Nicole in the back. Leslie turned off Tathra Road onto the dirt track leading to the campsite, but as he drove along, the vehicle bottomed out on the rough and uneven surface. Lindsay told police that Leslie lost his temper started yelling at Lauren and Nicole, saying, quote, Les put the hard word on them, saying if they stuffed up, he'd kill them. Both men pulled knives on the girls, Leslie telling them he'd stab them if they tried to escape. Lindsay also threatened the girls, saying, quote, Whilst Les was off going, he pulled his knife out of a pocket in the driver's door, this was a black-handled pocket knife with a serrated edge. Les turned around to the girls and showed them the knife. He told them to shut up and not to say anything. Les said if they did not do what he said, he would stab them. During this, Les told me to get my knife. I got my knife out of the glove box. I have a black-handled knife with a jagged edge. I showed the girls I had a knife too. I said to the girls to do as Les says. What Lauren and Nicole now realized, only too late, was that both the vehicle's back doors could only be opened from the outside. The window handles were also missing, meaning the windows couldn't be wound down either. Once inside the car, Lauren and Nicole were trapped. Leslie pulled the car back out onto the Snowy Mountains Highway and drove through Kalaroo, where the girls lived. But he wasn't stopping. He drove onto Old Wallagoot Road, then turned down a dirt road towards Bega Rubbish Dump. Lindsay claimed that Leslie asked Lauren and Nicole if the men could have sex with them, but they refused. Leslie stopped the car on Old Wallagoot Road, but the girl's nightmare was just beginning. Both men pulled Lauren and Nicole from the car, each sexually assaulting them at knife point. It was the first of several repeated, brutal sexual assaults that the men committed against both girls over the next 12 hours. Lindsay told police he left his knife on the floor of the car. He told Lauren to remove her clothes, which she did from the lower half of her body, and Lindsay also undressed. In a desperate attempt to dissuade Lindsay from assaulting her, Lauren told Lindsay she was on her period and that she was a virgin, but he took no notice. Lindsay continually raped Lauren vaginally and orally for about half an hour, despite admitting that he knew she was utterly terrified and incapable of consenting. While this was happening, Leslie had taken Nicole to the other side of the car and forced her to perform oral sex on him. The men returned Lauren and Nicole to the back seat. This was the spot where Lauren's clothing could be later found. But police were unable to determine whether it had been ripped from her body by the men before the assault or whether Lauren had the presence of mind to leave them on the ground leaving a sign that the girls had been taken there. Leslie drove along Old Wallagoot Road, south through Marambula, and then along the Prince's Highway towards Eden. As they approached Ben Boyd National Park, north of Eden, Leslie told Lindsay he wanted to have sex with Lauren. Both men proceeded to rape Lauren and Nicole again. Leslie pulled Lauren from the car, and the pair were absent for about half an hour. During this time, Lindsay orally raped Nicole in the car. When Leslie returned, he told Lindsay he tried to have sex with Lauren, but couldn't as she was, quote, too tight. Lindsay told police, quote, the girls didn't have a choice about having sex. They would have been scared because of the knives and the threats. This was the location where Lauren's flashlight and tampon were later found. The men forced the girls back into the car and continued into Eden, once they arrived, they drove to the wharf to see if a trawler was moored, where Lindsay used to work on. 
Failing to find the vessel, the men drove out to Eden via a back road, ending up on dirt tracks. Leslie again pulled the car over and the men got out. Lindsay dragged Nicole out of the car and Leslie pulled Lauren out. Lindsay sat in the front passenger seat and forced Nicole to kneel on the ground in front of him. He forced her to perform oral sex, but he couldn't get an erection. Leslie also got Lauren to crouch on the ground while he stood up and forced her to fillet him. Lindsay told police that Leslie would punch the girls in the head if they weren't performing oral sex to his liking. Lindsay estimated he saw Leslie punch Nicole in the head about 30 times in total, but Lindsay denied striking either of the girls himself. Lauren and Nicole were forced back into the back seat. Leslie instructed Lindsay to drive along the Prince's Highway towards the town of Orbost in the neighboring state of Victoria. As Lindsay drove, Leslie forced Lauren to perform oral sex on him in the back seat. In between viciously sexually attacking Lauren and Nicole, Leslie and Lindsay continued to inject heavy quantities of amphetamines. Now over the border, Lindsay took a turn off and stopped at Wingen Point. Leslie told Lindsay he, quote, wanted to have another go at Lauren and told him to drive along a gravel road into the forest. Lindsay complied, stopping near a large log as Leslie asked him to. Leslie ripped the top off a beer can cardboard box, placing the lid on the log so Lindsay would know where to come back to. Leslie pulled Lauren out of the car and led her into the bush where he raped her again. Lindsay drove off with Nicole. He turned onto a dirt track off to the left and drove down the dirt road for 10 or 15 minutes. Lindsay told police, quote, I was with Nicole, but I don't remember what I did. It is possible I had sex or tried to have sex with Nicole at this stage. Lindsay and Nicole returned to pick up Leslie and Lauren from the spot where the cardboard from the beer case had been placed. Leslie put Lauren in the car. Lindsay noticed that Lauren was now wearing pants like leggings and Leslie's t-shirt, which was a light gray color with green or blue writing. Leslie was topless, but was wearing his track pants. The vehicle tore away from the location, continuing into Victoria. Leslie fell asleep, but as dawn neared, he awoke and was infuriated when he realized they were still in Victoria, now about 60 kilometers over the border. Lindsay told police, quote, I drove down the highway and just before the Con River, Les woke up. He wanted to know where we were. I told him we were in Victoria heading to Orbost. Les cracked the shits and was abusing me. He was saying he wanted to go to Sydney. Kept saying the bridge. I took this to mean he wanted to throw the girls off the bridge because he had spoken about this before. There are some bridges on the way to Sydney on the Hume Highway which have great drops. Lindsay told the police that Leslie then used the words, can't go back. Lindsay interpreted this to mean that Leslie wanted to kill Lauren and Nicole to avoid being identified and that he believed the girls would have heard the exchange. Lindsay took a turn off north onto Monero Highway towards Bombala in far south north south Wales and as he drove, Lauren asked if the men were going to kill them. Leslie responded they were just going to tie the girls up so the men could escape but Lindsay knew Leslie was lying. At this stage, the girls had been held captive for over eight hours had been driven several hundred kilometers away from Kalaru. Just after 8 a.m., the men and their terrified captives eventually arrived at Fiddler's Green Creek, where Lindsay turned off a sidetrack and stopped the vehicle. It was a remote and isolated spot of bushland, just south of the north-south Wales-Victorian border. Leslie told Lindsay to get the keys to the boot, and both men got out of the car. Leslie took a rope out of the boot, cut a length of six feet long, and tied Lauren's hands together. Lindsay had already tied Nicole's hands together with a piece of cloth from inside the car. The men then walked the girls around 200 to 300 meters into the dense bush, along a dirt track, down to her creek. Leslie was in front, leading Lauren by the rope, tied to her hands, and Lindsay was behind Lauren, leading Nicole. Leslie told Lindsay to untie the girls and ordered them to strip naked. The girls removed their shoes and clothes on the lower half of their bodies. 
Leslie ordered the girls to wash themselves in the freezing creek, especially their vaginas, to eliminate any sort of evidence of semen. When Lauren winced at the frigid water and hesitated, Leslie said, quote, Get the fuck in there. After splashing themselves with water, the girls dressed and had their hands retied. The men led Lauren and Nicole along a nearby track towards a creek bed and placed them face down on their stomachs, on the sand by a large uprooted tree. Leslie made improvised gags by cutting strips of denim from Lauren's jeans. The girls were then further restrained. Leslie tied Lauren with the remaining rope from the car, restraining her hands behind her back and wrapping the rope around her ankles and up around her neck twice, hog-tying her. Lindsay tied and gagged Nicole, but before he did so, she asked again if the men were going to let them go. Lindsay didn't reply and only pushed the gag into Nicole's mouth. Leslie told Lindsay to take Nicole up to the top of the embankment about 30 meters away, tie her to a tree. Lindsay again obeyed, first untying Nicole's hands and then making her sit at the base of the tree while he tied her hands behind it. The girls couldn't see each other. Halfway back down the embankment, Leslie told Lindsay to drown Lauren and then kill Nicole. Lindsay, expecting the men would kill one girl each, told Leslie he didn't want to. Leslie replied, quote, Just do it. Just fucking do it. I'll stab you here and now. Lindsay told police that the conversation was whispered, so the girls wouldn't overhear the details. Lindsay watched as Leslie walked out of sight, back to the car. This was it. Lindsay's account of what happened next is as follows. Quote, I went over to Lauren and dragged her down to the water. I held her head under the water. She was struggling, and she knocked me into the water. One of my knees, I think the left, went into the water. This pissed me off a bit, so I opened my knife. It's in my left hand, and I stabbed Lauren in the side of the neck. After a couple of seconds, after I stabbed her, she stopped moving. After I stabbed Lauren, I ran up the bank to where I tied Nicole up. She must have heard what I had done to Lauren, because when I got to her, she said, You're going to kill me, aren't you? I said, Shut up and walked around to her left side, and I cut her throat two or three times. This was across her throat. The knife was in my left hand. Nicole was sitting down when I cut her throat. After this, she was thrashing around on the ground. She was trying to scream, but nothing was coming out. I think I kicked her because she wouldn't keep still. And then I put my foot onto her to keep her still. This didn't work, so I stabbed her in the throat. I aimed and stabbed at the hard thing in her neck. I pushed the knife all the way in, but she still wouldn't keep still. So I worked out where her heart would be, and I stabbed her on the left side of the chest. She still didn't stop moving, so I stabbed her in the front of the chest. I was aiming for the heart. I needed two hands to get the knife through her chest. She kept moving, so I kicked her in the head a couple times. She still kept moving, but she was slowing down. I waited until she stopped moving, which didn't take long. The brutal task completed, Lindsay untied the bloodied ropes and gags from around Lauren and Nicole's lifeless body. Returning to the car with the restraints, the girl's blood covered his shirt sleeves, pants, and face. Leslie harangued Lindsay for reassurance that he had killed the girls. When Lindsay confirmed he'd carried out Leslie's instructions, Leslie then asked him, did you see the demon? Leslie suggested Lindsay change into clean clothes, placed his discarded clothing in the car along with the ropes and gags, got into the passenger seat and fell asleep. Leslie drove the pair along the Can River Highway, north to Canberra, while Lindsay slept. When they arrived at the entrance to Canberra on the Monero Highway, Leslie drove to Theodore Lookout, he stopped the car and told Lindsay to get a can of petrol from the boot and burn his discarded clothing, as well as the ropes and gags. Leslie then drove to a suburban shopping center, where he bought Lindsay a pair of shoes, who, having burnt his own, had none. The men had a bite to eat before setting off again, with Leslie still driving. By now, it was about midday. The men drove to Canberra's iconic Lake Burley Griffin, Leslie told Lindsay to throw their knives off the Commonwealth Avenue Bridge 
out of the car window and into different parts of the lake. The men then returned home to Yas, where they made a brief visit to Leslie's former apartment. Next, they went to Lindsay's apartment, where the two men lived with Andrew. Leslie was still concerned about getting the money Andrew owed him for the drugs. On October 7th, the day after the murders, the three men drove into Canberra engaged in petty crime. On October 8th, the men drove to southwest Sydney and stayed with Leslie's brother for several days. In Campbelltown, they spent six hours cleaning the vehicle on a car wash, going as far as removing the seats and shampooing and vacuuming the upholstery several times to clean it thoroughly. About a week after the murders, Leslie, Lindsay, and Andrew drove back to Theodore Lookout in Canberra, where Lindsay poured more petrol on the remains of the burnt clothing and restraints, setting fire to them again. Leslie and Lindsay drove back to Bega area in an unsuccessful search for the pink TV, which they dumped on the side of the road. By this time, it was gone. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.